0: I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, our Rock and Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. We're gonna take a look at a very familiar passage again. Sometimes familiar passages are uh, the ones we ought to pay attention to again. We take them for granted. Sometimes I do, probably you don't, but sometimes I need to go back and look at those things that have sort of been dynamite in the past uh, to me and have kind of uh, worn like coins. You go back and the embossing uh, returns every time you read it again. And so I want to turn our attention to uh, Hebrews chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, saying, today. And through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Thus far the reading of God's Word. You know, there are a lot of warnings that go out to Unbelievers, when we take the gospel to unbelievers, we're, we're giving them the law, the gospel, and trying to show them that apart from Christ, there is absolutely no hope. But we do that with Christians too, and with ourselves, right? We, that's why we hear the law every Sunday before we hear the gospel, because we, we need also to be driven to Christ week in and week out, we forget, we easily forget how serious God's warning is and how beautiful His solution is to the problem that we face, namely the wrath of God. It's a a real problem, it's a coming problem, it's something that is, is delayed for now so that people can come to saving faith, but it is coming. And the writer to the Hebrews warns us of that, that his warnings become increasingly intense as he goes. And in chapters 2, 4, 6, I want to say 8, uh, but not, not 8, 10, and 13, you have this sort of uh, a crescendo of warnings. And yet these warnings, as you see here, are meant... Actually, to bring us comfort. In in chapter 6, for example, he, he talks about what it's like for people to grow up in the covenant family, be baptized, receive communion, hear the Word of God every week, look indistinguishable from the sheep, and yet never to join the hearing of that gospel with faith. It's like water over a duck's back. But I'm convinced of better things in your case, beloved, things that accompany salvation. What a wonderful thing to say. are you know, many people he doesn't even know. But I'm, I'm confident it's better in your case. Things that accompany salvation. Things that accompany salvation are the things that are given in the covenant of grace. To, to, they're promised to, to all of us. And that's what baptism signifies and seals, that promise. I will be your God. You will be my people. You will be my person. But not all who are Israel are of Israel. Not every member of the covenant. That's why he brings up in chapter 10, he brings up Esau. Selling his birthright for a bowl of stew. People walking away from it people people at the beginning in chapter 2 uh, are are wandering from it they're drifting from it but by the time he gets to chapter 13 they are in real danger of falling into the hands of a consuming fire and so this, this text is really meant for for people who have grown up in the church uh, people who who say look i know it all that's the see that some of the most dangerous people to to uh uh, uh to warn <laughs> because if you like they've heard it all i've been through the motions i i know what happens at every point in the service i it's all happened to me i know I've done it, but it doesn't solve my problems. God does not understand who I am or what I've gone through. When I go to this website, when I turn on that, that, that uh, uh, station, I listen to that music, I hear, I, I am with people who get me. They understand me. He doesn't, and so I can come and go through the motions, but what difference does that make? He just doesn't understand. Maybe he pities me. Well, oh, that's even worse. How's, how's that? For all eternity, the one who made you standing over you saying, mm. that's how a lot of people feel. Well, that's how God feels about me. Sympathize, he can't sympathize with a sinner like me. He doesn't know what I've done, he doesn't know what I do, he doesn't know my thoughts, he doesn't know my desires, he doesn't know my actions, all the stuff I've done. How can he sympathize with me? And if he pities me, I don't want him around. What would you say to Friedrich Nietzsche's ugliest man? Zarathustra discovered uh, a monster of a man, a despiser of those, those who pity him. This poor, this poor guy. See, there's again the pity. This poor guy didn't want to be known as the poor guy, but uh, he 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 was like so many people we see on the street, just sitting there naked in a in a blanket. It's called the the ugliest man, and he claimed to have killed God. We're told but he he had to die he looked with eyes which beheld everything he beheld men's depths and drags all his hidden and ugly things his pity knew no modesty he crept into my dirtiest corners this most prying over intrusive Over pitiful one had to die. He ever beheld me, and on such a witness I would have revenge or not live myself. The God who beheld everything, and also me, that God had to die. Man cannot endure that such a witness should live. Thus spake the ugliest man. When we talk about the death of God, when we talk about you know, pushing God away, I mean, this is the number one reason. It's not really that we don't have enough arguments and evidence and so on and so forth. It's, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness because we are like Adam and Eve in the garden, fleeing from the presence of God because our conscience tells us things are not right between us and there will be hell to pay. That's what he tells us at the beginning of the chapter, right? That God knows. The Word of God is like a sword piercing our heart. It's It's not just a book with ink and paper. The Word of God is active and living, searching us out. It's true. He does know our ugliest places. He cuts between the bone and marrow to search us out. But why does he do this? Does he do this just for fun? Does he do it for pity? Why exactly does he do this? And that's why the, the second half of the passage which we're focusing on this morning gives us such glorious good news. Because it tells us, first of all, of a glorious high priest, secondly, of a sympathetic high priest, and thirdly, of A gracious high priest and these are these are very different ideas uh, but they all converge at the end as we'll see here as we go along Hebrews uh, has used the title high priest already in chapter 2 and so he's he's fleshing out what is really a central theme in the letter to the Hebrews that, that that here we have a priest who's far greater than any priest In the official priesthood of Aaron the Levitical priesthood the Levitical law only made provision for storing up forgiveness it didn't actually forgive you know that that's why it's called the atonement not because it's at one month it's another word for that reconciliation doesn't mean at one month it means cut to cover over that's all those sacrifices did No one was really forgiven for good except in retrospect because of the coming of Christ. That's why those sacrifices, if you looked to Christ because of those sacrifices, then you were forgiven. But the sacrifices themselves couldn't take away sins. They could only remind you that you are a sinner, as the writer says in chapter 8. And so we need a high priest. We need a a high priest who doesn't just offer animals, but offers himself. Imagine the paradox of that, the high priest also being the victim he brings and lays on the altar. However, here the preacher And that's who he is the writer of the hebrews is really the preacher this is a sermon that was passed around in the early church Uh, he is stressing to his covenant audience what sort of mediator do you have to have what does he have to be one of the things i love about athanasius is uh book on the incarnation is, is he asks the question not opera he doesn't ask in advance uh, uh what kind of uh, uh, philosophical doctrine of christ do we do we want to you know present it's like it's not it's not speculation he he asks a very good question what kind of savior do we need Anselm asked that question centuries later. What kind of Savior do we need? He has to be fully God in order to be able to save us, but fully man because it's man who needs to be saved. This high priest is superior, first of all, he says, because he has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, glorious high priest surpassing all of the mediators of your first of all he's Jesus there's the you know his humanity you will call his name Jesus the angel said for he will save his people from their sins his name is already connected to his work Jesus he's the one who will save his people from their sins he was so much one of us that when he came to preach in his hometown he was rejected you remember his his own family i don't know him i don't know who he thinks he is he sometimes kind of gets a little you know messiah complex and here he is jesus back in town and everybody rejects him precisely because he's too human we all we played stickball together when we were kids we, we, we know his parents. We're all, you know, and everybody is kind of related in a, in a sort of distant way. He's too familiar. The God who's too far away terrifies me, but the God who is too close can't possibly be God because he's too familiar. God can't win for losing with us. <laughs> So he keeps coming, he keeps reaching down, he keeps sympathizing with us. And that's why, secondly, he's the sympathetic high priest. There's a lot of a lot of focus in Hebrews on the sympathy of God and Jesus Christ. Now remember, Jesus Christ is God, so the one who is sympathizing with us is not a mere creature. It's not like, you know, God found somebody who was really empathetic. And he said, I would love for that person to help my people. Uh, A a, a human being who's just really, he's really sweet. He's really kind to people. He listens. He's a good listener. I want to make him like the head of this thing. No, God the Son, the eternal Son of the same nature as the Father, righteous and holy, this same God becomes our sympathetic high priest. And so we're united, first of all, in nature. We're family. We're brothers and sisters. He's emphasized that, uh, again, already in chapter 2. Who did he come to save? He came to save his brothers and sisters, not angels. He came came to save his brothers and sisters. He didn't assume an angelic or celestial nature as the Anabaptists taught at the time of the Reformation. They they taught in the Gnostics of old. They taught, he, he didn't take a real human body from the Virgin Mary he actually uh, took his flesh from heaven. It's celestial flesh, you know, kind of like, eh, eh, but not really. It's not that crass flesh that we, whose teeth we have to brush every morning and uh, comb and care for and dress. Not that kind of body. It's a celestial flesh. It's not from the Virgin Mary. And that's exactly why we have Article 18 of the Belgic Confession. (laughs) He truly assumed a real human nature with all its infirmities without sin. For he was conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit and not the act of a man. He not only assumed human nature as to the body, but also a true human soul, in order that he might be a real man. For since the soul was lost as well as the body, as it was, it was necessary that he should assume both to save both. Contrary to the heresy of the Anabaptists, who deny that Christ assumed human flesh from his mother, we therefore confess that Christ partook of the flesh and blood of the children. He is fruit of the loins of David, born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, a fruit of the womb of the Virgin Mary, born of woman, a branch of David, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, sprung from the tribe of Judah, descended from the Jews, according to the flesh, of the seed of Abraham, since the son was concerned with the descendants of Abraham, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, yet without sin. In this way, he is in truth, our Emmanuel, God with us. The whole gospel right there in one article. And really summarizing everything that the writer to the book of Hebrews has to say on this subject up till now. What this means is that the God who commands becomes the servant who obeys. And I want you really, especially those of you who have been thinking perhaps, I don't know about all of this. I, I really don't know if God knows. If God knows my heart, he can't like it. If God, if God really hates my sin, he has to hate me. He doesn't get me and I need, I need to look around for other people who do. Even to, to go to hell with people who get you, rather than to go to heaven and be with a distant father who doesn't really know. But this high priest is God who commands, and the true and faithful son who does it all in every point like us yet without sin there are two phrases here kata phrases according to everything except for sin according to everything it's it's something being emphasized here according to everything like us. Our human nature is not inherently sinful. There is absolutely no infirmity Jesus took on himself that is sinful. Even the temptations. The temptations didn't make him sinful. Adam and Eve weren't sinful when Satan came and tempted them. very good was the verdict that god gave over his creation particularly the creation of humanity jesus is in fact more human than we are because he's obedient he does what he's supposed to do he has fulfilled his purpose his telos not just as god but as human that's what humanity was supposed to mean in the dictionary The good and faithful son, the fulfiller of all righteousness, the one who says to his father, let it be done unto me according to your word. In fact, the holiest man who ever lived faced temptations far graver than you and I ever will. When we face temptations, it's as people who've already given in to a bunch of them. It's people who are kind of familiar with sin. Imagine what it would have been like for Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary, to go through life, not just because he's God, but because he's also the true and faithful human son, to go through life constantly assaulted by temptations that are totally alien to his being but he gets (laughs) he gets them because he had them he had them all he doesn't say that he had each and every temptation we've ever struggled with but every kind of temptation every type every category does that mean? Yes, that category. What about over here? That, that category. And we know for a fact that he, he, he struggled with temptation, don't we? Even in, in, right at the beginning when the, the devil uh, tempted him, he struggled mightily. He struggled with hunger. I mean, how, how many of us have done things that we maybe thought we'd never do? Out of material need or want or lack. Satan entertained him, showed him all the kingdoms of the earth, and said, Here's, look at all the power and glory you could have if you just go around the cross and bow down to me. It's like that right now. Of course, it was just all shadow, it was all a show. By going to the cross, Jesus was able to found a kingdom through his own blood. Had a far greater prize than Satan had offered him. Or how about when he was at the grave of Lazarus, about to raise his best friend from the dead. He knows he, he is about to raise him, and yet when he looks death in the face, cries out in a loud wailing, horrified the face, looking in the face of death, let anybody tell you if they're you know some people face death differently some people just sail into the sunset some people really struggle against it and here is Jesus struggling against it when he knows in five minutes he's gonna raise him horrible thing it was tempted it's terrified it's lonely all the times when his disciples fled, fled him when he was praying, fled him when he was, you know what, can't you just stay up for five minutes praying or, or reading scripture? Can't you just, no, his disciples went to sleep and, and by the time they're at the cross, they're, you know, planning their escape routes and, and uh, he died alone but he had to he had to do what only he can do nobody could help him no one could help him bear that awful load he had to bear your sin and mine alone he was the only one who could do that he didn't need their sympathy they needed his because he is the sympathetic high priest United in, tep- in, in nature, united in temptation, and then united in redemption, yet without sin. See, he, he's our redeemer, our faithful redeemer, because he is without sin. Not only without sin, but positively obedient. Not only the lamb without blemish, the perfect sacrifice, but the one who even before that had fulfilled all righteousness in our place. So that instead of seeking pride and power we can experience servanthood being servants of god and each other instead of fear trust instead of poverty and sickness restoring hope and life to others instead of loneliness becoming part of a community that he created See, it starts with a lonely man, and it becomes this giant community. That's, that's, the, that's the kind of community his sympathy brings, creates. In all points like us. Yeah, like you. No, not, not like me. Put, don't push him away. Don't After all, he don't. Uh-uh. Yes, like you. Like each and every one of you. Yet without sin and that yet without sin is not more judgment (laughs) apart from the gospel yet without sin would mean well he did it why can't you that's not what the author is saying his point is that everything required in the law the goal of our creation he has done for us he not only sympathizes he sympathizes to the point where he went through horrifying Affliction and death. In order to make sure it would never happen to us, ourselves. He gets us. He gets us. And it's that love that makes it possible for God to be both the just and the justifier of the ungodly. May I conclude there with this the the last couple of verses that talk about him as a gracious high priest he's not only glorious he's not only sympathetic if he's glorious that's great the glory of God by itself doesn't save us it scares us every time you read about the glory of God showing up uh, being revealed it's terrifying to people Uh, by itself God Incarnate being sympathetic is wonderful news, but what does it do? How does his sympathy for us actually secure our redemption? How does it give us hope? And it's really the conclusion that brings together, I think, the glory and the sympathy when he talks about our our high priest being gracious. So here in uh, verse 14... He says, since we then have, such a great high priest, since we then have, and he says it again in verse 15, there's a, it's, it's a phrase here, since we then have. I love that. Since we then have. not We really hope we're going to have. One day we'll have. Won't it be nice when we have? But since then we have. we have a faithful high priest now listen to this since we have if 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 jesus is god our high priest is jesus we have a sympathetic high priest we have god think about that The God who's sovereign, who's transcendent, who is not our little plaything, not a toy, not somebody we can jerk around, that God has nevertheless placed himself in our tiny little hands. We have a faithful high priest. God belongs to us. God is haveable. He's not only sympathetic, in Jesus Christ he is haveable. You can have him. And that's why he says hold fast our confession. Because we have such a faithful high priest, we may hold fast our confession and draw near to the throne of grace with confidence." Isn't that wonderful? He is Jesus, who suffered as we do, was tempted as we are in every way, and he is the Son of God, who nevertheless makes his Father himself and the Holy Spirit haveable for us. Through him we have access to the throne of grace. See, because he was tempted like us but without sin, the father finally has an obedient and faithful son, the head of the family, the true human servant who has fulfilled his and our destiny of being a human being. And so we don't have to fulfill the destiny of being a human being in order to have a sympathetic high priest. We have one. We have one now. Therefore, in him we come with confidence. We come boldly. See, we don't grovel. That's what Nietzsche thought. We come like the ugliest man. I'm not going to grovel. The last thing I'm going to do is grovel, and I'm not going to have a God who pities me. And so the ugliest man kills God, in the parable at least. I will not, I will not have, I will not have. An omniscient, pitying eye, creeping into my darkest corners. No, what do sinners do here? Because we have such a faithful hyper, we come with confidence, not grovelling. When we come to the Lord's table this morning, we are not coming grovelling. We're not coming like the you know uh, the, the Dickens character. May I have some more, please. We're coming as those who have a right to be here. So don't let your sins or your failures keep you from this table. Remember we say that in the words sort of, given to us because of our weaknesses to strengthen us with Christ's body and blood. We come with confidence. Because of who He is already for us, not in the hope that He will be that. We come to receive mercy, He says, for timely help. Mercy for timely help. You need mercy, not just in general, but right like today, in a timely way. <laughs> mercy, like right now, mercy. Do you need some right-now mercy? We may not only receive help, but help just when we need it before it's too late. John Calvin, commenting on this passage, said, The ground of this assurance is that the throne of God is not arrayed in naked majesty. That would only confound us. But it is adorned with a new name, even that of grace, which ought ever to be remembered when we shun the presence of God. For the glory of God, when we contemplate it alone, can produce nothing else than despair. So awful is that throne. So he allures us by draping grace like a banner across his throne. What would you say to Nietzsche's ugliest man? I think, I think this is one thing we could say to him in closing. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help just when we need it. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we're always amazed at how even though we think you're so distant and so aloof, don't really care, why would you care about us? And if you do, you'd be mad. Always amazed. at your sympathy and love toward us as sinners. You, you come to us in all of our filth, in all of our self-destruction. You become the lover of humanity, and in your son, you actually, in loving him, are loving a human now, our human head. That's how we can know that you are sympathetic, how you are merciful, how you receive sinners into your presence, welcome them into your presence, not for their righteousness or their unrighteousness, but because we have a faithful high priest. Help us, Father, to cling to him, to run to his service, for I pray in Jesus' name, amen.